Well, you all know what I do for work, and I just want to let you know that the most rewarding part of my job is getting to do this, getting to stand up in front of people and to, to know that we've got a message that's worth sharing, one that can change your life, uh, and having people who are eager to hear what God has to say to them. It, it really means a lot to me, so thanks for being a part of uh, what I love to do. Well, let's get started uh, with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we know that you care about every aspect of our lives. You don't just care about what we do on the weekend or when we're at home, but you care about what we do out in our work life. And you have something to say about that. You want us to thrive in that area as well. And so God, we pray that as we open up your word, that you'd speak to us, that you'd give us uh, imagination to see how you want to transform the way we work so that it reflects what you're like. And so we pray that you would do that by the power of your Holy Spirit. And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, today is the first week in a five-week series we're doing on the topic of work. We want to talk about the area of life where most of us spend over half of our waking hours on a typical day. And when we talk about work, we're not just talking about what you do to get paid. We're talking about any labor you might do, uh, whether you're uh, retired, whether you're a stay-at-home parent, whether you're a student, or whether you are working for an employer. Uh, all of those tasks we do uh, where we have to do work and put forth effort to do something significant, that's what we're talking about with work. Now, for a lot of people, if I ask the question, what does God have to say about your work? Most people wouldn't even have an answer at all. They'd say, well, okay, it's kind of like my work life and my religious life, and those things don't really connect very much. I, I don't really know what they have to do with each other. They're just kind of separate arenas. Uh, even for Christ followers, a lot of Christ followers will have an answer to that question, and it'll go something like this. They'll, they'll say, you know, I really want to do my work with character. Uh, I want to be a person who is humble and is kind to the people that I work with and uh, works with joy. And, you know, all, they talk about the virtues that they want to have in their work, and that's a really, really good thing. Or they might say, you know, the, the money that I make with my job, I, what I wanna do with it is use that uh, for God's purposes. I wanna support my family, I want to uh, support my church, I wanna support causes that are good, and so uh, that's how my work connects with, with my, my spiritual life. Or, or they might say, you know, I, I wanna use the relationships that I have in my workplace the same way I do my other relationships, my, my friendships and my family relationships and with my neighbors. I, I wanna use that as a, an avenue for showing people love and uh, hopefully sharing the good news of Jesus with those people. And all of those are excellent answers of how God connects with your work. But if I drill down and I ask the question, okay, why this work? Why does God want you to be a software engineer or hairstylist? Or, or drive a bus, or, or, or manage this team? Why does God want you to do this particular job? Most people would say, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know why God wants me to do that. I, I like doing it. I'm good at doing it. But, uh, you know, what, what does God say about this particular task? I don't really know. So that's what we're going to try to address in this series. We're going to try to say, what does God actually have to say about the real specific work that you do? And to do that, we're actually going to look at it through the lens of the Christian story. Now, the Christian story, the gospel, can be told in four acts. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. I want you to say those with me. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. The first act, creation, is when God makes everything that there is, and it's good. In the second act, that's when all of the trouble starts and sin and death enter the world. That's the fall. The third act, redemption, is when Jesus shows up on the scene and he starts to put things back together. He actually solves the problem of sin and death by dying on the cross and being raised again. And the fourth act 
is when God ultimately puts all things back together and remakes the world the way he wants it to be. That's restoration. And each week, we're going to be looking at our work through the lens and asking, what do each of these acts of the, the Christian story have to say about the work that we do? And as you might expect, we're going to start at the beginning. We're going to start with creation. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open up to the very first page of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. We're going to start reading in verse 26. Now, this is a, a very famous chapter of the Bible. It's the one that starts with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And over the course of this chapter, God uh, puts together the world over six days, building each uh, thing that he has made. Uh, this is one of the very few chapters in the Bible where there is no sin, okay, where it actually describes the world the way things were meant to be. It's an ideal situation. And because we're talking about work from this chapter, what that means is if you're here and you're like, I hate my job, <laughs> I wish I didn't have to do it, I'm, I'm dreading going to work tomorrow, come back next week, okay? Uh, this week we are talking about the, God's purposes, God's ideals for work. So let's begin with uh, the culmination of God's creation in verse 26 when God makes human beings. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild creatures, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work that he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now around here, many of us have discovered that when we open up this book, we hear the voice of God. Uh, you may not believe that to be true, but if it is true, that's something worth saying thank you for. So let's do that right now. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This passage gives us an insight both into what work is and how God wants us to do it. So here's what work is. Work is ruling God's world. Ruling God's world. Okay, I need a show of hands, all four campuses. If I went into your house, could I find something with Disney princesses on it? Okay, raise your hand. Some people are very eager. I know there are lots of you. Put your hand up high and proud. Okay, now, uh, if you are a woman or you are a kid, put your hand down. Gentlemen, keep your hands up. I know there are some of you, okay? I'd like to inform all of you with your hands up. We are starting a support group uh, for fathers of young daughters. I'm gonna be leading it. Um, I have two young daughters. I have a four-year-old and a seven-year-old. Their names are Elsa and Anna. That's a joke. That's not their names. Uh, but they'd answer probably if you called them that. Um, so when Michelle and I started having kids and we had a daughter, 
We have these high-minded ideals. You know, when you're a new parent, you think, I'm, I'm just going to do things perfect. My, the environment's going to be great so that my kids are formed exactly how they should be. And one of the things that we said is, we're not really going to do the princess thing. And it's not because there's something really bad about princesses, but we, we thought, you know, it's just not the vibe that we want. Because, you know, princesses, it's all, it's kind of passive, you know. It's about being pampered and wearing the pretty dress and the jewelry and waiting around for some boy to come rescue you. And we thought, that's not what we want for our girls. We want them to be active. We want them to go out and fight the bad guy. We want them to have the adventures. We don't want them to, you know, wait around for some guy to fulfill their dreams. Like, that's, that's not the point. So we're like, we're just not going to do the princess thing. Well, two things destroyed that high-minded ideal. Disney's advertising department and grandparents. So now we've got them all. We've got Belle and we've got Anna and Elsa and Rapunzel and all the rest in our home. So here's the question. What is the appeal of princesses. I think it is more than the fancy dresses and the crowns. I think that built into human beings is a desire, an innate desire to rule over something, uh, to have dominion over something. Even for a four-year-old little girl, we crave a kingdom. Now, there are obviously some problems to saying, well, I really want to be in charge, but I think at its root, this is a good and natural desire. It's built into us by God. In fact, it's one of the first things the Bible tells us about human beings. Look back at verse 26 there. God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over all of these creatures. This is the reason God made human beings. This is our role in creation. We are made to rule God's world. It's actually what the term image of God means. Let me show you a picture. Do you know who this guy is? Who's that? King Tut. King Tut. Now, uh, King Tut is one of the most famous pharaohs in all of Egypt, but it's not because he was very important. Uh, he actually, you know, he's about nine years old when he went to the throne. He died as a teenager, so he didn't reign very long and he didn't do anything all that significant. The reason he's famous is because it's one of the only tombs we have where we actually have sort of the, the, the it wasn't robbed, it wasn't looted by anybody. So we actually have what the pharaohs were buried with. So he kind of displays a typical ruler in that day. Now, King Tut, you know what his full name is? Tutankhamen. His name is Tutankhamen. Now, in ancient Egyptian, the word Tutankhamen means the living image of Amun. The living image of Amun. Amun was one of their chief gods at that time in Egypt. So that's what this guy's name is. I am made in the image of our God. Now, hearing that, I want you to put yourself in the, the mindset of an ancient Israelite slave. Because all the time you have heard the one made in the image of God is the king. And for hundreds of years, your relatives have been slaving, breaking their backs, working day after day with no break to make bricks and cities and roads and monuments in honor of the one who is made in the image of the gods. The one, the gods said, you're on earth here to do our will. You're the one who represent us. Your will represents our will. And the slave was told, okay, this is the reason for your existence. You serve the image of God. Imagine being that slave and then hearing these words. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Not, not just the king, not just the pharaoh, but all of humanity. Male and female, slave and free, rich and poor, are all made in the image of God. Every person you have ever met is royal. You and I are the kings and the queens of the universe, and our job is to rule God's world on God's behalf. 
So what does this have to do with our work? I actually think that work is one of the primary places where we carry out that job description. When you go to work, you go to rule. In the next chapter in the Bible, God puts the first human beings, Adam and Eve, in a garden, in the Garden of Eden. Because what God has done is declared this big, massive assignment for humanity. Fill the entire planet, subdue all the creatures, rule everything. But that's way too huge. So he's got to personalize it. He, he says, here's your assignment. You start with this garden. You fill and subdue this place, and we'll move out from there. God does the exact same thing for you and me. He gives us a, a little piece of turf within the world to rule. It's your classroom or your delivery route or the team that you manage. That your job is the place where you exercise God-given authority. You can't affect everything in the world, but in this time, in this place, your actions make a difference. Your decisions determine the outcomes. This is where you act as the image of God. You are ruling in the place where you work. Now, to really understand what this means, we've got to take a second and look at the kind of world God made for us to, to rule. What kind of world is it that he wants us to be in charge of? As we read the first chapter of Genesis, three things come out really loud and clear about the world. First is this. It is a world full of goodness. It is a world full of goodness. As God goes around making everything, each time he makes something, he stops and he looks at it and he says, oh, oh, that's good. Right there, that, when he makes the, the light, he says, oh, the light is so good. He makes the land and the sea, oh, that is good. And when he makes the sun, moon, and the stars, those are good. And the, the plants and the animals and the sea creatures and the birds, good, good, good. And when he gets to human beings, he says, very good. This is very, very good. A lot of people get the impression about God that he is very stern and serious and easily irritated. But those people obviously didn't start reading the Bible on the first page. Because the first impression you get of God is that he is unbelievably happy, like over the top excited about everything that he sees. It's like that scene in Elf when he goes to New York and like everything's amazing. It's like, look at this, look at this. It's like, you did it, the world's best cup of coffee. And it's like, how does anybody get that excited about anything? Why, is, why does God think everything is amazing? Because everything is amazing. He made a good world. Now, sometimes people get, get the impression that there are kind of two tiers of things. There, there are some things that really, really matter, and those are spiritual things, heavenly things. And there are other things that are, you know, they're okay. They're the physical, worldly kinds of things. And, and if, uh, you know, you're involved in those things, like, that, that's okay, or, or maybe even kind of a problem. If, if you really could be involved in the spiritual things, those are what really count. And so when we talk about jobs, we often kind of have two tiers of things. So, uh, you get the impression that it's like, okay, there's work that you can do for God when it's, it's ministry, it's being a pastor or a missionary or working for a charity, and then there's kind of everything else. And I, I hear this all the time. People will say to me, they say, oh, it must just feel great to have a job where every day you're doing God's work. I think, wait a minute, God's work? Have you, have you read what God's work is? Oh, very first page, what's he doing? He's making the physical universe. He's making the world of relationships and, and society. He is creating the world. And he says, it's unbelievably good. The, the Bible never says this stuff is all temporary. It doesn't say it's secondary. God's plan from start to finish is to make a world and develop a world and keep the world forever. That's what God is trying to do. So if you work in a secular job, where you work with metal or electricity or numbers or chemicals or bodies or personalities, you should listen as you do that work 
to the whisper of God in your ear, looking over your shoulder saying, that's good. That's very, very good. God made a world full of goodness. He also made a world full of order. As we see how God put the world together, we see that he is as organized as an engineer. Over the course of the six days in Genesis 1, God creates a space for everything, and then he puts everything in its space. Actually, this is how the, the, the days are structured. The first three days, God creates arenas for things to be in. He creates the light and the dark. He, he creates the sky and the sea. He creates the sea and the land, all these different areas. And then he goes back through the next three days and he fills them. He builds the, the sun, the moon, and the stars. He, he makes the, the fish and the birds and he makes the land animals and the human beings. That everything has its place and everything is put uh, in the right order. Uh, all of those of you who are Jays on the Myers-Briggs, you're like, yes, that's what I'm talking about. God is one of us, all right. We live in a world that makes sense, a world of principles and laws, a world that you can investigate and understand. And if we didn't have that, work wouldn't work. If we didn't live in a world of order, you couldn't build an engine or test a hypothesis or brew a cup of coffee. It just wouldn't happen. So we live in a world of order, but that's only one side of the equation. We, we also live in a world of potential. And this is where all the P's on the Myers-Briggs are like, yeah, here we go, all right? Because what God did is he packed the world with possibilities of things that were new and novel that hadn't happened yet. He built into the world the opportunity for fresh things to start. So as he goes through uh, making each thing, he tells each thing, all right, multiply, spread, fill, swim, crawl, fly, go everywhere, make more of you. It's like the world is just exploding with these possibilities and the potential. Pay attention to this because God made a good world, but he didn't make a complete world. He made the world good, but he didn't make it complete. Think about this. God made cows. He did not make milkshakes. Okay, to get a milkshake, you've got to domesticate this giant beast. You've got to figure out how to milk them and separate the cream. Then you've got to cultivate sugar plants and extract the sugar from that. You've got to figure out how to store ice and keep it cold. You've got to grow cocoa plants. You've got to ferment and roast the seeds, turn it into chocolate. Then mix all of that with some other ingredients in the right proportions and serve it in a dish in order to get a milkshake. God buried metal in the ground and hid rubber inside of trees, knowing that one day we would draw out their potential to make bicycles and BMWs and Boeing 747s. He made water and pressure, but we made indoor plumbing. He made corn and weather and probability, but we made futures trading. He filled the sea with salt and the ground with potatoes so that one day we might discover French fries. And behold, it was very good. In the beginning, God made the world perfect, but that doesn't mean it was finished. It was a world full of potential that he made, and then he made you to draw that potential out. That's what we do when we rule God's world. That's what it means in verse 28, to subdue the world. It means working within the order of the world to draw out the potential of the world in order to increase the goodness of the world. Working within the order to draw out the potential to increase the goodness of God's world. And that is exactly what we do when we work. One of the best books I've read on work is a book called Every Good Endeavor by Tim Keller. It's available in resource if you want to pick one up. Here's how Keller describes the process of taking raw material and turning it into culture. He says, farming takes the physical material of soil and seed and produces food. 
Music takes the physics of sound and rearranges it into something beautiful and thrilling that brings meaning to life. When we take fabric and make a piece of clothing, when we push a broom and clean up a room, when we use technology to harness the forces of electricity, when we take an unformed, naive human mind and teach it a subject, when we teach a couple how to resolve their relational disputes, when we take simple materials and turn them into a poignant work of art, we are continuing God's work of forming, filling, and subduing. Whenever we bring order out of chaos, whenever we draw out creative potential, whenever we elaborate and unfold creation beyond where it was when we found it, we are following God's pattern of creative cultural development. That's what work is. It's the way we rule God's world on God's behalf. How do we do this though? The answer again is found in verse 26 when it talks about how we were made to be in the image and the likeness of God. We were made to imitate and reflect him. The way we work is this, by reflecting God's work, by reflecting God's work. In the ancient world, the gods did not work. In Babylon, the high god Marduk, the reason he made human beings is because the gods were fighting over who would do the work. So he decided he'd make an army of slaves to do the work instead of having the gods do the work. That was the point. We exist so that they didn't have to work anymore. In ancient Greece, what are the gods doing up there on Mount Olympus? You know, Zeus and all the rest. Well, they're eating and they're drinking and they're sleeping with each other and they're having arguments and they're, they're, they're making bets and playing games, but they are not working. That's kind of what it meant to be a God. Like you were powerful enough that you didn't have to work. So if you are in that environment and you're thinking about your work, there's no way you're gonna see it in a positive light. Like, of course you wanna be like the gods, but being like the gods means getting out of your work so that you can party all the time. The Bible flips that on its head. Not only does God work, but God says the reason we work is so that we can join in his work. And it's not just in Genesis 1. One of the most amazing things is this. Jesus spent 30 years of his life. He only lived to 33. He spent 30 years of his life learning a trade and being a carpenter. That word carpenter, when it's used in Greek, it means more than just someone who makes tables and chairs or cabinets. It usually refers to someone who builds buildings. Usually it actually refers to a stonemason. So what this means is that when God showed up and lived on planet Earth, most of what he did was construction work. And it kind of makes sense because that's what he was doing on the first page too. He's making this elaborate, beautiful, incredible home for every living creature. You've got to see this. God works. And that means work is not a curse. It is a good gift because it reflects what God's like. And so if we're going to do our work well, we've got to actually imitate the way God works. One way to think of this is, is this. A lot of times people will uh, say, you know, I really want to do my work in a godly way. And what they mean is I want to have virtue in my work. I want to be humble. I want to do my work with honesty and integrity. I want to do things in a way that shows Christian character. And that's a really, really good thing. But we need to ask a further question. Not just how do I do my work in a godly way, but how do I do my work in a God-like way? In a way where this task, this activity is actually a reflection of things that God does. And to ask yourself, when I'm doing this, how am I reflecting something that God also does? The best way to do this is actually to read through passages of Scripture and see what God does and say, how can I imitate that? A great activity to do this week would be to go through Genesis 1 and 2 and just list all the things God does and then say, all right, in my work or in the work of my friends or if you're in a community group, our work, how do we do this? I can't show you all of those now, but I do want to highlight a few of them that I noticed here. 
One of the ways that we reflect God's work is when we bring order out of chaos. The second verse of Genesis says that the earth was formless and void. It was empty and a mess. And over the course of the chapter, God brings that messy, chaotic world and puts it into order. Does that sound to you like your work? Certainly sounds like my email inbox. It's what a general contractor does when they sort through bids and timelines and materials and safety regulations. It's what an event planner does when they coordinate the logistics of schedules and decorations and food and musicians and tech requests and room reservations in a way that the people who are at the event just get immersed in the event because it's orderly and they're not distracted by all of the details that are behind the scenes. This is the job of accountants and administrative assistants and project managers. How do you do this in your work? Anytime you bring order out of chaos, you're reflecting God. Another way we reflect God's work is when we meet tangible needs. When we meet tangible needs. The first thing that God does after he makes humans and animals is he blesses them and he says, here, I'm going to provide you food. He gives them that. In chapter 2, when he places Adam and Eve in the garden, he's basically saying, I have your needs met. The Bible says this again and again. God is our provider. He gives us our daily bread and he clothes us and he protects us. But have you ever asked the question, how does he do that most of the time? He does it through other human beings. He does it through the ordinary, sometimes overlooked labor of millions of people. Like God could just snap his fingers and food would appear on your plate every single day, but that's not how you get your food. You get your food through the farmer who planted the seed and the migrant worker who picked the food, and the scientist who developed the fertilizer, and the truck driver who, who shipped the food, and the person who tracked the inventory, and the person who unloaded the truck and stocked the shelves, and uh, the person who cooked the food, and the, the, the server who uh, brought you the food, and dozens of other people along the way. That's how you're going to get lunch. Uh, Martin Luther used to say that God milks the cows through the hands of the milkmaid. How does God provide safety and security for a town? He does it through firefighters and police officers and elected officials who establish good policies. How does God provide shelter for people? He does it through builders and home inspectors and real estate agents and mortgage brokers and landlords. How does God take care of our physical bodies? He does it through nurses and doctors and dietitians and physical therapists and pharmacists. To work in a way that meets the tangible needs of other people is one of the most profoundly God-like things you can do. And one of the best ways you can love your neighbor is simply doing that kind of work really well. This especially includes jobs that you might consider menial. Think about what would happen if no one did some of these things. If no one cleaned public bathrooms or collected the trash or serviced a septic tank. I mean, think about this. What is more godlike than getting into the messy parts of someone's life so that you can provide health and well-being for them? That's basically what Jesus did, didn't he? He got into our mess so that he could offer us health and life. Here's another way we reflect God's work. Anytime we use words to make meaning. Anytime we use words to make meaning. All throughout Genesis 1, this is what God's doing. He speaks and action happens. He speaks and there are categories. He speaks and he gives names to things. Yet you ever have that experience where you didn't have a word for something and all of a sudden you learn a new term and it's like, oh man, I can think about that. I can talk about that clearly now. This is why people are always making up new words. That's why we've got hangry and muffin top and staycation because you got to figure out a way to talk about certain phenomena in life. Naming things is one of the jobs that God gave Adam in the garden. You got to name all these animals under your care. And it's an important part of the work that, that many of us do. Max Dupree, he said that one of the first jobs of the leader is to name reality for the people that you lead. 
That if you lead in an organization or a team, your, your primary tool is words. That's how you give direction and clarity and categories for people. It's how you, you thank people. It's how you give them feedback. It's how you ask them questions. Many of your jobs involve a lot of written communication. You, you write copy for advertising or annual reports or organizational emails and memos. You, maybe you give presentations or sales pitches. Words are your work. And this is actually one of the most remarkable things about the God of the Bible. He speaks. He's not silent. And so anytime we use words, especially when they give meaning to people, that reflects his image. Another way we reflect God's work is anytime we strengthen community. God didn't make us to be alone. Each time he makes something, he says, multiply, be fruitful, fill the world. Because God wants a society, not just individuals, a society full of human relationships. And anytime you strengthen those relationships, you're being like God. Sometimes it's interpersonal. You're a, you're a marriage counselor or you mediate conflict on your team. Uh, other times you're, you're building the, the broader bonds of society and community to make it more just. You're, you're a lawmaker or a social worker, or maybe you set the budget for the city or the county. When you do that well, you strengthen the community, and that's what God does. We reflect work in another way. When we cultivate beauty and delight, beauty and delight. Look around the world. Have you seen this? We do not live in a sterile, plain, functional space. The world is varied and creative. It is packed with wonder. I mean, have you ever seen a tree? Okay, look, if, if a person made a tree from scratch and you'd never seen a tree before, that person would be the greatest artist that ever lived. One single tree. They're, 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 people would travel from around the world. Millions of people would flock to see this incredible work of art. We would preserve the memory of this work for, for generations to come. And I got five of them in my yard. Yeah, I got a Picasso. I got a Rembrandt. They're everywhere. We, we don't live in a warehouse. We live in an art gallery. God isn't just interested in the things that are practical and efficient. He wants a world of excess. He wants a world of beauty. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, he talked about his stories as sub-creations. He says, we, we can't make anything out of nothing the way God can, but, but what we can do is we can take what exists and turn it into something new and fresh that didn't exist before. Uh, being a studio musician, being an, a designer, being a hairstylist, a, a pastry chef, a videographer, a landscape architect, this is reflecting the creativity of God. Because that kind of work, it isn't just about what works, it's about what delights, and brings pleasure and joy to people. One final way that our work reflects God's work is anytime we empower other image bearers. When we empower other image bearers. God can do anything he wants, Right? He doesn't need us. But on the first page of the Bible, we see him delegating activity to somebody else. He doesn't have to do that, but that's what he does. He uses his power and authority, he's got all of it, to give power and authority to human beings. So whenever we take uh, our authority, our influence, our, our knowledge, and we give some of that to other people, and we increase their ability to do something, when we help them in their work, that is a very godlike thing. When we increase their skill, when we foster their growth, when we partner with them, we're doing what God does with us. If you are a manager, this is basically your job description. You use your authority so that other people can do their job better. If you're in education, that's what you're doing. Whether you teach driver's ed or calculus or third grade, you're using your knowledge and skill to increase the knowledge and skill of another image bearer. If you work in human resources, you're an occupational therapist. If you're a parent and you are teaching your toddler to say please and thank you and ABC, 
What you are doing is taking a raw, unformed image bearer and growing them to become a king or queen of the universe. It's very godlike. Now, these are just some of the ways that our work can reflect God's work. You can discover many more as you read through Scripture. But I can tell you this. Anytime your work imitates God, a couple of things are going to come with it. First is this. It is going to be done primarily for other people, not just for yourself. It's going to be done for others, not just for your gain. And it's going to come with some risk or some sacrifice on your part. It's going to be done for others, and it's going to come with sacrifice. How do I know that? It's because I look at Jesus Christ. The New Testament says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. It's pointing back to Genesis 1 saying the one who perfectly embodied the image of God was Jesus. He was the true king, the high king of creation. He did it right. And so when you look at his work and say, how did he do it? That's where you see God reflected most. And what was his best work? When he died and rose again. When he took our burden of sin so that he could offer us new life. That's what he did. So anytime you do work that reflects God, it's going to look like that, where you take on risk and suffering for yourself and sacrifice, and you offer goodness and life to other people. There's going to be an element of that. How are you doing your work in that way? I want to highlight one final thing in this passage that God tells us about work. Look again uh, at chapter 2 at the very beginning. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now there's a danger in trying to imitate God in our work. Anytime we want to be like God, it is easy for us to forget that we are not actually God. And that's a recipe for anxiety and burnout and uh, putting uh, undue pressure on other people. The only way I know to fight that is this, by resting in God's satisfaction. Resting in God's satisfaction. God works for six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. Why in the world did he do that? It was because he was worn out. He's like, man, I just made the entire world. I need a nap, you know? Or was it because he, he just was bored with his work or it was frustrating work? And he's thinking, look, I, I work for other people all week long. I just need a day a week just for myself. You know, I just need to do something that I actually enjoy. It's not what God's doing. God doesn't need rest. And he certainly is loving the work that he's doing. So why does he stop? When my daughter was two years old, a little toddler, I took her to a, a play place at Chick-fil-A. And those are designed specifically for toddlers. So this is one of the first places where she could actually play without me, you know, hovering over her. And she discovered the slide and just couldn't get enough of it. So the whole time we were there, she, she would go up the stairs and climb up the stairs and go across the tube and go down the slide and get to the bottom and go, yay! And she'd go back up the stairs and across the tube and down the slide and yay! And up the stairs and across the tube and down the slide and yay! And again and again and again and again. And after she had done this maybe seven, eight times, she goes down the slide one last time, cheers and stops and goes, I did it! It's like that. Oh, really? I didn't know you were keeping track or what the count was, but glad you did it. Uh, and then she gets up from the slide. She goes over to mom and dad and she sits down next to us and puts her hands in her lap. And just has this satisfied look on her face. 30 seconds later, she goes, again! And then it's the stairs and the tube and the slide and yay! Over and over again. Now, why did my daughter stop and take that rest? Was it because she was worn out? No. Was it because, you know, she wasn't enjoying what she was doing? She just needed a break from that. No. 
She was doing it because she was satisfied, because it was good. She wanted to soak in the moment of saying, yes, this is worth doing. This is what God was doing on the seventh day. He was delighting in what he was done and simply enjoying and savoring that. This is another way we need to imitate God. We've got to have this rhythm of work and rest. Do you have this? Both a daily rhythm and a weekly rhythm. Do you have a definitive stopping point each day for your work? When you can stop and you can say, that was good, and thank God for what got done and trust him with the results. Do you have an entire day set aside each week where you stop and you don't do anything and you say, the work of the week was enough. I can enjoy myself. Or, or do you simply keep going because there's really not boundaries on your work and you don't really have a, 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 you know, a limit on what, you know, it just kind of bleeds into everything else. My guess is that if you don't have a rhythm of rest and work in your life, you're probably not delighting in your work the way God designed it to be delighted in. Not being able to stop is not a sign that, oh, I just love my work so much, I just want to keep doing it. It's usually a sign that you're a slave to your work. And why do we become slaves to our work? And we're going to talk about more about this in later weeks. But when work dominates our lives, it's not usually because, oh, the job is just so demanding. It's usually because our hearts are so demanding. People who are driven are usually driven by insecurity more than confidence. We're afraid that if, if we don't work more and do more, accomplish more, we won't have enough. That we're afraid if we don't do more, work more, accomplish more, we won't be enough. And so that's why it is so important to look at the work that God accomplished in Jesus. When Jesus died, he declared, it is finished. Everything that you needed to have, to have uh, everything supplied for, for you and more has been accomplished. It's done. And God is satisfied in that work. That in Christ, all our needs have been met. And so we have nothing to fear. In, in Christ, all of our status and our worth and value is secured. And so we have nothing to prove with our work. And because of that, we can rest as well. Now, how different would it be if every follower of Christ worked in this way? If we dignified every kind of work around us, seeing it as royal activity of people ruling God's world. What if we filled the world with God's goodness by reflecting the way that he worked and the way we work? What if we took rest in the delight that God has in everything that he has made, including us? I think that's the kind of work that will change the world. We're gonna sing one final song. As we do that, we're going to collect our gifts and our offerings. This is a moment where we uh, can say thank you to God by offering back something that he has given us. Now, as that bag goes by, uh, just as kind of a side note, I know that when that happens for me, I, I do automatic giving online. And so this is kind of a weird moment where I'm like, oh, this is going by and not doing anything with it. Uh, even if that's you, if you, you give electronically or, or some other way, uh, use this as a moment to at least pause and say, thank you, God, for what you've provided. Uh, let everything that I have be for your service. Let, let's pray and then we'll sing. Heavenly Father, it, it is so good that you invite us to join in your work in the world, that you've made this incredible, amazing world and you've let us be responsible for it. God, God we pray that you would uh, take us and, and use our work and make it so that it reflects you. We, we do things in such off sinful ways all the time. God, we want this to be something that brings life and goodness into your world the way you designed it. So God, we pray that you would shape our imagination even this week as we go to work that we would see what we're doing in light of your word and that we would take delight in it the way you do. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.